This episode contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. You're listening to the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kalatni. We're back, and we have a full show for you today. We'll talk about this week's Love & Facts-related headlines, share an interview I had with prominent feminist writer Jessica Valenti, and we'll answer a couple of listener questions. But we'd be remiss if we didn't start by addressing the massacre that took place at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando. You know, Karina, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about now is how this just really exemplifies the hate that still exists in our country. And we're just a few weeks away from the anniversary of marriage equality becoming the law of the land here. It was only a year ago. And I think a lot of people think because that happened, uh, that queer people are safe and that queer people are equal. And that's just not true. So what happened on Sunday was really just another, albeit much more horrific and extreme example of the hate that still exists here. And we have to be working on that and figuring out ways to change those attitudes. And I think a big part of changing those attitudes is not using the killer's religion as a scapegoat. While religious extremism was definitely a contributing factor here, we have to take a good, hard look in the mirror. I've been hearing all of these GOP lawmakers talk about how Muslims target the queer community as if a cornerstone of the Republican agenda isn't and hasn't always been gay bashing. Mm -hmm. It's time to look at our own prejudices because if this event taught us anything, it's that blind hate toward a group of people because of their sexuality, their race, or their religion only leads to tragic devastation. That's right. And, you know, one of the best things that we can do in the face of hate like this is to just keep talking about our lives and about who we are and who we love and also who we fuck. (laughs) Because the more we talk about it, the more it demystifies it, the more it defangs it. And that's how we change our culture. So I think that's what we should do. Well, on that note, let's get into this week's headlines. Up first, are you ready for this? Bobby Brown claims that he had sex with an actual ghost. (laughs) Uh, He has a new memoir out, and he says in the book that he had an encounter in a haunted mansion. He would often see a white woman walking down the hallway and, quote, one memorable night, one of the ghosts descended from the ceiling and had sex with him. Thoughts? Ah, my the most interesting thing he said was that he wasn't under the influence of drugs or alcohol when the ghost had sex with him. Right. So that's interesting. There was this movie in the 80s called The Entity, and it's about this woman. Barbara Hershey plays her, and she's being raped by a ghost over and over. And it's one of the most traumatic movies I've ever seen. And at the end of the movie, there's this card that pops up at the end of the movie, and it says, um, you know, Joan Smith is still having attacks, but they're not as bad as they used to be. And it's supposedly based on a true story. So are you saying that you believe this or are you saying that you think the the idea of it is in, of, is in and of itself traumatic for the person who believes they're experiencing it? I think both. So you think that a ghost could just come down and, and get it on with you? Okay, no, I don't think that. <laughs> I like to be – I'm like Fox Mulder from The X-Files. You know, I want to believe. I'm not sure I do believe. Right. What do you think? I mean, I believe in – 
energy and I believe in, you know, people having spirits and things like that. But the, the notion of a fully formed being descending from the ceiling and mounting a gentleman <laughs> who is just trying to get a good night's sleep. That sounds more like, you know, he says he wasn't asleep, but it sounds sort of like a half asleep, half right. awake, you know, sort of mixed manifestation. What if it wasn't a fully formed ghost that came down from the ceiling? What if it was just like a ghost vagina? <laughs> just just you know like I mean? a floating, floating. V- vagina or vulva in there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now I'm going to have nightmares about other things. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there because we have other news to talk about. Hamilton won big at the Tonys, but it's not just the musical theater audience that this raucous musical has won over. According to an article in New York Mag, a porn production company called Wood Rocket is developing a Hamilton porn parody. It's called Hamilton. <laughs> it's the same studio that was behind other parodies such as Game of Bones, Sponge Knob Square Nuts, and Ass Venture Time. You know, it's obviously ridiculous. I think there's only so many plots for porn that you can come up with. And so it makes sense that when something's really hot and there's something zeitgeisty, they're going to do that. Um, do I want to see it? No. Right. Though I have to admit, actually, last week I watched the X-Men gay porn parody, (laughs) and it was Wolverine having sex with Cyclops. And I was just like, I need to know what happens. Was it hot, or were you more watching it for entertainment It was really boring, actually. I found that the fact that they were so heavily scripted and it was based on a theme, I almost felt like they phoned it in for the rest of it, and the sex wasn't very good. So... I don't know. Maybe we should get Hamilton. Maybe we should review it. <laughs> yes. If the makers of Hamilton are listening and want to <laughs> come on the show and discuss it with us, you are welcome. This is your open invitation. The next story is about an adult baby store in a suburb outside of Chicago. So what that means is that they sell adult-sized cribs and high chairs. And so it's for people who have adult baby fetishes. But they also sell diapers for medical reasons, too, for adults who need diapers. But people are freaking out about it. They don't want this store in their community. And so there was a big uh, hearing at like a city council meeting where people were outraged that they would approve this to be opened in their city. Thoughts? I think it's interesting because a lot of the resident comments from the town hall that you mentioned, it seemed like they were confused and thought that it was about having a fantasy about having sex with babies, like having like there was some sort of pedophilia involved, right? As opposed to you know we we've done an entire episode on this and talked to multiple people that had adult diaper fetishes, right? And and really learned firsthand that th- that is so far from what this fetish entails. It has nothing to do with that. I mean, on top of that, you know, I read too that the store. All the windows are, like, um, covered with paper. Yeah, blocked so You off. can't see in. I think you can only actually go in by appointment. Right. And, you know, it's not obvious what the store is. But I think even if it was, like, how does that hurt anyone? If right. someone wants to dress up like an adult baby and they want to have a – they want to buy a big crib, it's always, like, what will the children think? Right. What do we tell the children? You know, and I, sometimes I just think – tell them, oh, there's some people who like to pretend – And this is part of pretend. Right. You know, I just think the hysteria that is present in so many aspects of our world and our culture now is exhausting. There's a really great Louis C.K. skit that came out before marriage equality was the law of the land. And he said, you know, to all of these people who are saying, well, what am I supposed to tell my kids? And he's like, (laughs) really? Like, you're, you're... 
people can't get married because you can't sit down and have a conversation with your shitty kid? Like, Thank you. Really? So I think the same is true for this. Again, like you said, the, the walls are blocked off. It's not like you can see in the windows. They've taken more than reasonable precautions. But even if there was some, you know, some remnant of what was going on inside, yeah, you have a conversation with your kids about how some people have fantasies and act them out in different ways. And... They will learn about it when they get older and define what their own fantasies are. You have a healthy conversation that ultimately <laughs> helps your child not be repressed for the rest of their lives. It's such a huge thing to ask of American parents, oh I think. Oh, God. Yeah, of course. I know. Here's kind of a fun one. There are lots of different ways to handle your noisy neighbors, but one New Mexico man took it a little too far when he got tired of hearing the sounds of sex radiating through his building. So he tried to burn the whole thing down. <laughs> Literally. Literally burn it down. So he is a 36-year-old man, and he said that he was tired of the noise, and he wanted to go to prison where he could get away from it. So he tried to burn the whole thing down. <laughs> In spite of he was not very successful, though. There was only limited fire damage. I want to know what kind of sex was going on. I mean... That would drive someone... To go that crazy. I really, I want to hear it. Yeah. Have you ever had something like this where you've had a neighbor who is really noisy? Uh, okay, so I had an upstairs neighbor who every day when the Colbert Report came on, <laughs> they started fucking, like the whole building shook. Right. Like on cue, as I if it was it. like that's what they did. Yeah. So I'd be turning on the Colbert Report <laughs> and the walls would start shaking. And I actually found it really entertaining because... The girl was so clearly faking her orgasm, uh -huh. and I wasn't sure who it was my obligation to to speak with. Like, if I should say something to the dude, like, right. hey, that's not real. She's faking it. Or if I should go to the girl and be like, you don't have to fake it. Like, right. You deserve pleasure. Like, Let's who is getting orgasm. more screwed in this situation? So, yeah. so that's my story. What about you? I, I have been that person before. <laughs> my old Did roommate. Did someone try and burn the house down? She was so angry. So I had this really cute French-Canadian guy come over, and he was Ooh. so loud. And it was right when I had moved into the apartment with my friend, and I didn't realize how thin the walls were. Okay. And apparently she had been, like, texting me the whole time, being like, I can hear you. And then the next morning, she was so angry. So I went to Kmart and I bought her some steak knives because we didn't have steak knives. And I was like, this is my gift for you. <laughs> I'm really sorry. And then from then on, whenever I had someone over, I would like be like, you cannot make any noise. Like you have to be so quiet. But you were going to say you bought her like earplugs or something that would that have been probably would have been better. Right. Or, like a white noise machine. Did she or really something. want steak knives? I don't know. But <sighs> I have to say, though, sex without noise is not good sex for me. I want to hear someone. Right. They don't have to be screaming. Mm -hmm. But I did have a boyfriend once who made absolutely no noise, not even when he came. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. You're like an android. Help me. Right. So. Like having sex with a robot, which we've also talked about before. We have talked about that. But until we're there, mm -hmm. I, I want to hear some noise. This next story is interesting. We all know about Brock Turner, who is the Stanford student who uh, was charged with rape. There's been a lot of controversy around that. It looks like now his case has an effect on the porn industry. The porn website X-Hamster is instituting a new rule named after the convicted rapist, which will delete porn that depicts rape or non-consensual acts. That's interesting because we talked last week about rape, rape fantasies, fantasies and whether or not they're okay. So what do you think about this and what do you think about rape porn? I don't know enough about it. Yeah. I really, I don't know enough about the research. I don't really know enough about what's out there to say whether or not that, you know, in, enhances people's desires to act that out. Mm -hmm. It seems a little extreme to me. 
I would agree. And I would say just like fantasies are something that I think people should be able to, to explore safely. Right. A lot of ways that people explore fantasies are through porn. Right. Same thing, too. You know, really popular for gay men is um, porn without condoms. Mm-hmm. And we know for years and years and years that was really looked down upon and it wasn't safe. But that was a way for people who maybe in real life would never have sex without a condom to actually sort of realize the fantasy of doing it. So maybe if you have those rape fantasies, it's a way for you to play it out by watching rape porn. At the same time, you know, people are always going to claim it's just like with violent video games. People right. claim that violent video games make people violent. Do they? I don't think we even know. I think they probably they might exacerbate existing violence. Right. But I, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure there's been studies that have shown that that's not really the like root of the problem. A stable person probably isn't going to go out and rape someone or probably isn't going to go out and murder someone because they saw a movie or a video game or a porn. Right. Yeah. So problematic. Speaking of problematic, this next story definitely is. Canada's Supreme Court ruled that forcing a dog to perform oral sex is not bestiality, so it is not technically illegal in Canadian law. So we were talking about this before we got on the air, and and I don't know how to feel about this because as we were saying, I think it's interesting that we can make animals do all these other things you know we own animals they are there to do our bidding from you know everything from a dog which we make play fetch with us to a horse which you know can pull a plow or whatever but we draw the line at what people have maybe called like the peanut butter game where i know people have joked about like putting peanut butter on their junk and then the dog licks it off right number one i'm not even sure that would feel very good and also like there's teeth and the dog doesn't know what they're doing but let's say it did happen why do we draw the line there and not in other places with what we do with animals well and my feeling is that maybe we should draw the line there but there are other places that we should draw the line where we aren't drawing the line. Right. So there are animals that have been shown to be much more intelligent, much more capable of emotion and feeling and attachment than dogs that we eat frequently. Like pigs. That we, yeah, that we grow and slaughter and have in the worst conditions ever. So it's always just interesting to me when animal rights groups are sort of like, you know, the angry Facebook community goes up in arms about, oh, that, you know, they're going to let people have sex with their dogs, mm-hmm. you know, while you're eating your your, you know, double cheese hamburger. Right. So this idea of consent, you know, they always say animals can't consent. That's why we don't allow bestiality. But, they but also they don't consent, consent to, to being, being murdered right? either. So for the record, I don't think either of us are saying, yes, we believe in oral sex with animals. But we are saying if we take this to its logical conclusion, it's some, there's something weird in general about the way that we interact with animals. Right. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So, the, Karina, this is interesting. Uh, in 1991, the federal government introduced the inaugural Youth Risk Behavior Survey. And according to the most recent survey, teens are having less sex, they're doing less drugs, and they're experiencing less teenage pregnancy than any other time in the history of the survey. Yeah, this is pretty insane. It says that in 1996, 5.6% of teen girls had babies. Now that number is just 2.3%. That's so interesting. Why do you think that is? I think that while it's still really pathetic, sex health has gotten significantly more comprehensive since 1991. And likely because of that, teen pregnancy and teens engaging in sexual activity has become less popular, Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting because so many conservatives continue to say that sex education leads to people having sex, even though we know that it doesn't. But that's a whole separate Karina tangent. 
Yeah, it's like with me, with my parents, they never were like, you can't drink or you can't do drugs or anything. And so I never did it. Right. Because it just wasn't this like mysterious thing taunting me from, you know, the corner of my eye all the time. I was just like, okay, this is not that big of a deal. Right. I think the same thing too for having honest and open conversations about sex with their kids. Like it's not going to be such a mysterious thing that they're going to want to try. Well, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Like nobody sees their 56-year-old overweight PE teacher talking about sex and was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go get me some of that. Like, at least in my experience, like, the sex health turns you off a little bit to, you know, going out, especially when you're at that age. And it's like icky to hear other people talk about it. But it's important. And and clearly we're seeing the results of that. So more comprehensive sex education. Let's get that teen pregnancy rate down. I wonder, too, if it's just more about us talking about it in culture. Because you see a show like Teen Mom on MTV and maybe kids see that and think, ah, that's not something that I want for myself. And so, but before we didn't see that, like if you were a teen mom, they like sent you the nunnery or something, you know what I mean? And so I think maybe just even having more examples of good and bad examples of what can happen because of sex might be changing the dialogue too. 100%. Now we're going to take a quick pause, but stick around because in a minute, we're going to share an interview that Karina did with Jessica Valenti. She's a Guardian US columnist and the author of a new memoir called Sex Object. And we're going to answer more questions from you, our listeners. You won't want to miss it. Before we get back to the show, have you found love and sex on iTunes? iTunes is one of the best places for people to discover our podcast. So please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and give us a review to let us know what you think. Each time we get a new review or rating, our podcast climbs the rankings, which helps other people discover our show and spread sex positivity throughout the land. And if you've already found us on iTunes, why not tell a friend? Okay, let's get back to the show. Now we're going to share Karina's interview with Jessica Valenti. She's a writer and a columnist for Guardian US, and she's just released a new memoir called Sex Object. So in your book, you talk about the unspoken effect on women of living most of their lives as a sex object. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners? Sure. I mean, I think what I really wanted to explore in the book was this idea of the cumulative impact that sexism has on women and in particular, you know, sexual objectification and the and the sort of dehumanized feelings that go along with that. And I use my own story to try to work through some of those issues. You say that there are certainly psychological scars, but there isn't a name or diagnosis for what we as cisgendered women experience. You wrote, we still have no name for what happens to women living in a culture that hates them. If you could give it a name, what would it be? I've been trying to think about this for, for a while, and I feel like there must be a German word for it. But um, we have <laughs> There's a German word for everything, right? right? We, haven't, we haven't quite figured it out yet. Yeah, you know, like we have a lot of feminist language because of the amazing work that feminists have done over, you know, over the last decades. We we have words like victim and survivor. We have, you know, terms like in recovery, but we don't have language to describe what it means to to live with sexism, right? Like not the individual um, experiences of maybe harassment or assault or even pay inequity, but we we don't have that sort of broad, that broad set of, of language. There are invariably probably a lot of men in particular listening to this that would respond saying, how can you say that our culture hates women? Mm-hmm. How would you respond to that? Well, I, I think that if you're a man, it's it's probably, you know, a, 
best to listen to the women in your lives. Yes, of course, in terms of policy, in terms of legislation, in terms of like our outward facing selves, we don't hate women. We say that everything is fine. But when you look at the culture, when you look at the way that women are treated, when you look at sexual violence statistics, it becomes very, very clear that there still is a pretty deep-seated disdain for women that reflect that reality. I love the anecdotes you sprinkle in about your daughter, Layla. There's one where you talk about her fear of turning six and performing her ballet in front of an audience instead of just in front of parents. You wrote that you told her not to worry because the people in the audience are on her side. Now, while that's certainly the case for a children's dance recital, what's explicit in your book is that our culture is not on women's sides in general. How do you hope to prepare your own daughter for that reality? I mean, this is part of what I'm struggling with and what and part of what I was trying to work through in the book is that I don't know that I that I know how to best do that yet. You know, I think the the best thing that we can do with the tools that we already have is to teach our daughters and our sons to be critical thinkers, to question things, to not accept them at face value, to talk about these issues in a really proactive way. But we still haven't come far enough. Again, you know, I can prepare my daughter for certain things, but I don't have that language to talk to her about what it might feel like um, over, a, over a lifetime. In your book, you mentioned a particular incident where a man was given just probation for raping his three-year-old daughter. You commented that there was an outcry, but that it was the lack of punishment that seemed to offend, not the seemingly immovable fact that some men rape three-year-olds. Of course, all over the news right now is the Brock Turner case, where we're again saying people outraged over his sentence as opposed to what he did can you speak to that? Yeah, I was doing a reading the other night, and I was reading that part, and it made me think about this case. And it's true. I think the very short—you can't even call it a prison sentence because he's going to county jail. This sort of lack of punishment, and of course that's offensive, but, like, the real issue is why is it so accepted to us that's outrageous? So how do we change that, or how do we start to change that? I mean, I think that we're already doing great work to start to change it. I think that young activists are doing a really amazing job on college campuses and off-college campuses. I think this young woman who came forward and, and wrote this letter has really left a mark on the culture in an incredible way. And I think, you know, paved the way for a lot of other people, men and women, to tell their stories. And I think that that will be incredibly helpful. But I do think it starts with listening to women's stories and experiences and trusting them. Absolutely. So the name of your book is Sex Object, even though you write that you don't relish the idea of identifying as such. Mm -hmm. How did you ultimately come to choose that title? You know, it was the first title that came to mind. Um, because the book is about objectification and dehumanization. Um, but it, almost immediately I was like, ugh, I can't call it that, right? Like, what are people going to say if I call it that? And I was right. I already am getting that sort of backlash, uh, you know, around the title, this sort of like, you know, you're too hideous to call yourself a sex object, which of course misses the point that calling yourself an object is not a compliment. <laughs> like, you want to be a person, not a thing. But ultimately I decided, you know, I can't let harassers or detractors determine what the content and certainly not the title of a book would be. And at the end of the day, like, that's the most accurate representation of what I'm talking about. It's not meant to be sexy, but I do think that it is shocking, unfortunately. 
Speaking of backlash, the end notes of your book are a really painful collection of threats and taunts that you've received online. One that was from an email sent to you on April 11th of 2012 reads, I think you need to be gagged. All we do is fuck and chuck women nowadays because of the rhetoric of cunts like you. I hope you perish in a gasoline (laughs) explosion-induced car crash. Very specific. Yes. How many (laughs) messages like this would you say you get in a week or a month? It really depends. They they come in spurts. Certainly a month doesn't go by and, and rarely a week goes by where I don't get at least a few. But, you know, depending on what articles I'm writing, there'll be some weeks where I'll get, you know, 300 and some weeks where I'll get one. And I think that that's a pretty common experience for a lot of writers, not just women writers, but writers from all sorts of marginalized communities. You write in the book about how you deal with this sort of thing by pretending like it just sort of rolls off of your back or by laughing at it, but that that might not be the most productive way to address them. What do you feel would be a more productive way to address these threats? Right. And to to be clear, like I'm speaking for myself, like everyone has to, you know, figure out how to deal with this in the best way that they can. For me, for, you know, for a long time, my preferred method of engagement was mocking folks. Um, And it had the benefit of sort of taking the power away from their statements, but also putting them on display and making people understand that this is the sort of harassment you get when you when you write about feminist issues or when you're a a woman with an opinion. Um, But I did feel like I was doing a disservice to my readers or like followers on Twitter or whatever, because it did make it seem like it was just rolling off my back and like I, I could take it on the chin. Why did you choose to include them as the endnotes to your book? I had thought about including them as an essay, but I did want to present them without context, without comment for me. And so EndNotes felt like an appropriate way to do that. You know, it's sort of like the backdrop of my life, but I'm also, you know, putting it at the end, putting them in their place a little bit. Well, thank you for writing the book. It is so powerful and everyone should go out and buy Sex Object, a memoir by Jessica Valenti as soon as possible. Thank you. Now on to one of our favorite parts of the show, questions from you. Here's our first listener question. When I first started dating my partner, I discovered he would watch porn often. I reacted negatively to this, feeling jealous and insecure. As a result, I became super against porn, and whenever the subject would be brought up or mentioned in movies or on TV, I would absolutely cringe and feel the horrible memories of the insecurities I felt. Now, after being together for a few years, wanting to try out more exciting things in the bedroom, watching porn while being intimate has crossed my mind. I'm older and more open-minded when it comes to porn now, but feel uncomfortable bringing it up to him, especially after how I reacted so negatively to it years ago. How should I bring this up with my partner? What do you guys think are the pros and cons of watching porn while having sex? Ah, that's so interesting. I think watching porn while having sex can be hot. It's like, you know, an act of foreplay... I never want someone to be more interested in the porn right. than they are in having sex that with me. That would be awkward. But I think it can be a nice mood setter for mm-hmm. sure, especially if you've been with someone for a long time mm-hmm. and, you know, things can get a little bit routine. Um, what do you th- How do you feel about porn in the bedroom? Whatever you're into. Yeah. yeah. I think it can be an interesting thing, way to spice things up. I also think as far as how you should bring this up with your partner, I think what you just said is perfect. A hundred percent. People change. Right. And the way that we feel about sex change. And I think your partner will probably be pretty excited to hear you say that, you know, you've reconsidered what, what you thought your ideas about porn were. 
Not to mention being in a relationship is about vulnerability. So saying, you know, I felt insecure about this. This didn't make me feel good. Right. If you're in a healthy and positive relationship, that shouldn't be something that, you know, you're too afraid to tell the person. No. So just have a chat. Maybe you guys can pick out some porn together, see what interests both of you. Mm-hmm. Or one night, one of you gets to pick, and the next night, another one of you gets to pick. But I think this is good. I think your your partner is going to be very excited about this. Onward and upward. Our next question I recently started seeing a guy, and after several dates, we finally slept together. It was kind of a letdown. I could sense that he was holding something back, so I asked him. He said he had a fetish, but he wasn't ready to tell me. Fair enough. Last night, after a couple of drinks at Pub Trivia, he came back to my place, and I raised the question again. I told him I wasn't judgmental, and if it was something he wanted to explore with me, that he would have to tell me. To be honest, I thought he was probably into anal or bondage, something that has been more mainstream than taboo. He told me he's into adult diapers. Thanks to your show, I was somewhat familiar with the topic, yay, so I didn't have too big of a reaction. To be honest, I was pretty turned on that he shared this with me, because he told me that he'd only shared this with one other woman years ago. Then it hit me. I never thought I would be in this situation. My brain is all over the place. Honestly, I feel like if I went down this path with him, that I would be tainted from here on. But I'm starting to feel like there is no guy who will meet all of my dating criteria. How do I know if this is something I should try to explore? Hmm. I think there are two different issues here. Right. One is this idea of like her not being able to find a guy who's going to meet all of her dating criteria. Mm -hmm. And two, if she'll be tainted if she tries this and what will happen to her or this relationship. 100% 100% you will not be tainted. I not think is, at all. is where we're going to start. Yeah. Um, I think that comes from like old notions of virginity and different things where it's like if you try something or if you do something that somehow marks you with the scarlet letter. Yes. Um, and it doesn't. If you no. try it and you're not into it, that is totally fine. It does not define you going forward. No. Um, yeah, you can do it once and never do it again. Right. But I do like the fact that she's open to it, right. especially because this is a person that she likes and she wants to have good sex with him. So if this is what gets him off and she says that that kind of turns her on, that he's willing to be so vulnerable and tell her. Yeah. I think it's really cool that she's willing to try that. Mm-hmm. Now, the other part of the equation, trying to find someone who's going to match all of the criteria she set out. I think that's also sort of a notion that a modern notion mm-hmm. where we have this list of things that. If someone doesn't meet them, they're not right for us. And we're waiting for a soulmate or we're waiting for a Disney prince to come along and they're going to be the perfect match. It's kind of like an online dating notion, right? Mm -hmm. Where you type in like, okay, I want him to have green eyes and be 6'5 and make this much money or, you know, whatever other criteria you put in there. And like we've said on the show before, you never know what your love is going to look like. You just don't. So. And honestly, based on what you wrote and the way that you're articulating it, it doesn't seem like this person falls outside of your criteria because he has this fetish because it seems like you're open to it. Yeah. And it seems like from what we can tell from the very little you've told us, you've had a good time with him otherwise. Right. That being said, I think the final note is that people shouldn't settle Right. They shouldn't just be with someone because they don't think they're ever going to meet anyone else who who really will make them feel the way they deserve to feel. So you kind of have to walk that line and see, am I just settling or am I being totally unreasonable and looking for someone who maybe just doesn't exist anywhere? You want to be with someone that makes you happy in all realms of your life. Amen. Our next question is this. 
I am a heterosexual female and I recently met a new guy. We are getting more intimate and I realize that I'm not sure how to kiss him because he has this big beard. We tried, but I end up sucking lip with mustache in tow and then pulling a lot of hairs out of my mouth. He admitted that the last time he made out with a girl, he didn't have this beard. So here we are making out, both trying to maneuver around his beard, both learning how to deal. We both laugh it off, but we both end up spitting out hairs. I don't want to be uncomfortable kissing this guy because the other stuff is so good. I don't want to ask him to clean shave or to cut his beard. It's very thick, black, quite soft, and luxurious. Mm. As he has his whole chin and mustache all thick, like lumberjack style. His beard makes him happy. Also, I know if he cuts it too much, that will be prickly and hard. But how do we suck face without eating beard? Wow. Wow. (laughs) Never thought about this before. I have a beard, but it's not luxurious. It's not lumberjack style. It's not. But I think this is sort of the same thing with any hairy place that you encounter. It's like, I think as long as you are sort of keeping it clean and healthy, um, you know, it's also like when you are giving a blowjob and you come out with all this hair in your mouth. I think it's nice to keep things sort of neat and trim. I think he could do the same thing. He'd probably even comb his beard before you guys make out, try and get rid of any of those excess hairs that possibly might get dislodged from your... (laughs) Sucking face, as you put it. Um, But I think as long as he's, you know, conditioning it and keeping it soft, I don't know. Yeah. You also said something about, like, trimming right around his lips a little bit. You could try and trim right around the lips, um, keeping that area clear. Maybe – I don't want to tell you not to – to kiss as vigorously. This is another one, too. I love that that we have these people who are meeting someone who maybe doesn't exactly – there's some kind of problem, mm-hmm. but they want to fix it. Right. They're like, how do we how do we make this work? And I love that. It's so amazing. I think just some experimentation. Um, I did a little research online. There wasn't a lot of stuff about it, actually, because I think people do. They end up either shaving it or they just sort of deal with it. But I would I would say, yeah, try and trim a little bit if you can right around the mouth. Comb it out before you start. And uh, I don't know. Hair is not that bad. Eat a little hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Noah has to say. Eat a little hair. Eat a little hair. It's worth it. There are worse things. Yeah. That's it for this week's episode of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. A special thanks to our guest, Jessica Valenti. Thanks to our editor and producer, Nick Offenberg. And a big thanks to you guys for listening, especially those who wrote in. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to Love and Sex on iTunes and reach out if you have a story for us or a question. Our email is Podcast at HuffingtonPost.com. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.